morning. Um, our scripture today is from Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. You can find it on page 6 in your program. Meanwhile, Boaz went up from the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. If you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I heard this one recently. Uh, what kind of man was Boaz before he was married? He was ruthless. As you can see, we're going to need some help today, so we better hurry and pray, right? Some of you like that one. I know you. I know you. 
Let's pray. Jesus, please, please come. Be present. We don't got time to waste looking at dead words, which these aren't, but we can treat them as dead words, closed hearts, closed minds, no expectation, no faith. But help them, therefore, to come alive according to your promise that we might encounter the living God through these words, through this incredible story. Pray that you would change our lives, change our church, and through us, even our neighborhood and the world around us. Uh, make this a resurrection moment because of your living and risen word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you like your movies to end? How do you like movies to end? Some of us like the happily ever after ending to movies. Right? All the characters get what they want. You walk out of the theater or you turn off the TV feeling pretty good. You know, like in the closing scene of Beauty and the Beast, for example. You know, after the beast turns into Fabio. For others of us, those feel-good endings, it's not your thing. They're not realistic enough, especially for those of you that are very attuned to the broken world in which we live. Real life is complicated. So you appreciate walking out of the theater with some mixed feelings. You actually appreciate that. You actually think maybe it's good to be a little sad once in a while with some parts of the story unresolved. That's how La La Land and Rogue One last year left you feeling satisfied, but also just a little bit nauseous, and you love it, right? As we see in this passage, the closing chapter here of the book of Ruth that we've been studying over the last couple of weeks, it seems to have one of those happily ever ending, ever after endings that we're talking about. Everything seems to work out. In the end, Ruth and Boaz, they finally get married. They have a baby. You can almost see the camera fading to black as Naomi holds this baby surrounded by the joy of the townspeople. It might even, to some of you, seem too much like a simple or even simplistic Hollywood kind of ending. But there's more to it than we might at first think. Let me tell you the story one more time, whether if you've been with us the entire time or if you're just stepping in. Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, tragically lost their husbands to death. And in those days, that would have made them terribly, incredibly vulnerable, physically, emotionally, legally, and financially. But in an incredible act of self-sacrifice and loyal love, Ruth, instead of just taking care of herself, Ruth, who was originally from the foreign nation Moab, she chose to give up her homeland, her family, her security, even a bit of her identity, in order to stick with Naomi and her God and to take care of her mother-in-law as she returned to her hometown in Bethlehem. And there, while working in the fields of Bethlehem as a day laborer, Ruth met a wealthy and upstanding man named Boaz. He showed her unusual kindness. He offered her protection. He treated her with dignity. It also turned out that Boaz was a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. 
which meant that he could serve as Naomi and Ruth's guardian redeemer. That was a role that an Israelite male could serve by marrying a relative's childless widow in order to help them father a child as a legal heir. It was a way, actually, of protecting the widow's legal and financial interests, keeping it in the family. The Bible doesn't ever present marriage as anyone's salvation. That's clear. But in this case, in the ancient world, finding a way to get Boaz to marry Ruth was actually the best possible way to provide a secure and stable future for Ruth and Naomi. And it helped, of course, that Ruth and Boaz had begun to take interest in each other. And so one evening on a threshing floor, this is Ruth chapter 3, Ruth asked Boaz if he might fulfill the guardian redeemer responsibility and marry her. With humility and gratitude and even a bit of surprise, Boaz said he absolutely would, except there was one problem. There was another guy in the picture, another relative, who was even closer in blood blood relations to Naomi than Boaz was. So technically he was the rightful guardian redeemer. And so he needed to be given the opportunity to provide for Naomi and Ruth. In today's term, you might say that that guy had the right of first refusal. But Boaz gave his word to Ruth. Look, if the other guy didn't want to do it, he would. Boaz would. So the suspense has built up as today's passage opens. Boaz found the other guy, the technical guardian redeemer, at the town gate. He gathered all the elders of the town as witnesses, which is what you did when you wanted to settle legal matters. And with a bit of negotiating savvy, Boaz first tells the guardian redeemer about a piece of land that Naomi's deceased husband once owned. And so he asked them, would he like to purchase it and serve as the legal guardian of the property on Naomi's behalf? And he quickly answered yes. But this individual didn't realize that there was more to the guardian redeemer's responsibility in this situation. It wasn't just land to take care of. There was also a lady. Boaz told him about Ruth, you find in the middle of the passage there. And the guardian redeemer guy who seemed to be able to think only in crass financial terms decided that this deal involved way too much financial risk. After all, he would then have to buy the land, which was costly, and then support Ruth, the young lady, for the rest of her life, and also her children, too, who, by the way, would have Ruth's dead husband's name, not his, and then when they came into adulthood, they, not he, would get the land, which, of course, was the whole point of the guardian redeemer's role. But clearly, it was costly, and it wasn't, look like, it wasn't looking like there was a whole lot of benefit in it for him. It wasn't worth it unless you loved Ruth as a person. Boaz did. The guardian redeemer didn't. So he bailed out. And so we're told in verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And that, of course, was this climactic word of hope, evidence of God's providence and provision, finally. But you know, if you were listening to the very end of the story, even that wasn't the final climax of the story. There's an ending after the ending. You know how some stories have that. To the original readers, it was the last line of verse 17 that would have stood out the most. It says this, And they named the child Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth, it's finally revealed in the closing words of this wonderful story. Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. Ruth the sufferer, Ruth the widow, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the day laborer would become the mother of the father of the father of Israel's greatest king, the one from whose family the promised Messiah, the greater David, even Jesus, would one day come. Which is why the most important point of this story is not simply that it's all going to be happily ever after in the end. The point is that God accomplishes his purposes in our lives and for the world through unusual and unexpected ways. Like through Ruth like through you and me, like through Jesus. Let me unpack that briefly by outlining three lessons I think we can learn from Ruth. First of all, God uses unlikely people to accomplish his glorious purposes. God uses unlikely people to accomplish his glorious purposes. Twice in this story, the author emphasizes the unlikeliness of Ruth becoming the great-grandmother of greatness itself. In verse 5, Boaz refers to her as Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow. And again in verse 10, Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow. This is Ruth we're talking about. As we said earlier, the, the, Ruth the foreigner, the cultural outsider from an enemy nation. This is Ruth, the widow, the victim of tragedy, the, the paragon here of vulnerability. This is who God chooses to use for his glorious purposes. And don't miss this too. This is Boaz's story as well. According to Matthew chapter 1, guess who Boaz's mom was? Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. She turned in faith to God of Israel, to the God of Israel. But listen, Boaz was a guy from a family with a past, you see? You know what that tells us? It tells us some good news. It tells us that you don't need to be smart or wealthy to make an impact in God's kingdom. 
It tells us that you don't need to have status or power in the world to be a real character in God's story. Hallelujah. You don't need to be good-looking or well-spoken to be used by God. You don't need to have an impressive education or a clean record or an intact family because God loves to surprise us by the people that he chooses to use because he loves to get all the credit and glory and loves teaching us about grace. As we're told in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, God chose the foolish things of the world, things like me, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong so that no one may boast before him, so that everyone might boast in the power of God. Of course, the most surprising thing isn't that we don't come from the right social profile, but rather that we don't have the right moral profile. We're selfish sinners, right? But God loves to use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God uses crooked arrows, but he hits his target every time. God uses unlikely people like you and me to accomplish his glorious purposes, do you believe that? Have you disqualified yourself or sidelined yourself from being an instrument in the Redeemer's hand? Do you believe that he can use you, even you, even me, even Ruth, to do wondrous things for God's purposes, for his kingdom? Second lesson, number two, is that God uses our ordinary acts of love to accomplish his glorious purpose. He uses our ordinary acts of love. Now, of course, heroic acts of sacrificial love can be found throughout this story. But let me ask, mostly, how did Ruth's personal story get weaved into God's grand story of redemption? It wasn't by a single act of awesomeness and heroism. She killed a lion with her bare hands, you see. No. It was by a sequence of ordinary, small, but consequential choices to love sacrificially. I mean, real question, how was Ruth initially brought into the family line of Jesus it all began here. She chose to serve her mother-in-law. How did Bo Boaz and Ruth's relationship first begin? When he chose to have a, a, a simple but dignifying conversation with one of his struggling workers named Ruth in the cafeteria. God's kingdom is advanced most especially through ordinary acts of gospel kindness. Ordinary acts of faithfulness, ordinary acts of self-sacrifice, the little things where you wouldn't even be able to see initially the redemptive impact 
the life-changing power that that act might have had. In fact, that's exactly the point. God is in the business of multiplying our five little loaves of bread and two small fish and feeding multitudes. He's a multiplying God, a God of resurrection after all. God's redeeming purpose in someone's life or in a church or in a neighborhood typically starts with barely noticeable, unimpressive choices to love sacrificially. What's that going to look like for you today? But do you know why that's so hard for us to get on board with? Because we lust after awesomeness. And the idols of a city like Washington, D.C. just don't help, do they? I mean, we really believe that God can't use us unless we've got a name or a platform. And so build and build and impress and impress. We really don't believe in the power of kingdom ordinariness which is another way of saying we don't really believe in the power of the cross. Because nobody standing there at the foot of Jesus' crucified body would have been able to imagine what God was going to unleash on the world in Christ's atonement for our sins and in his resurrection from the dead. It was too plain. It was too ordinary. In fact, it was far too ugly. Jesus himself was the unlikeliest of all Boy born into a broken family, living in relative poverty, not much to his name, living as an ordinary worker in the world as a carpenter, and yet secretly and truly being the very son of God, dying an ignoble death, though he lived a perfect life, paying the price for all of our sins that he might give us life and bring us into the cross-like pattern of unleashing resurrection power into this world through forgettable things, little things, ordinary things, faithfulness, sacrifices, kindness, and here's another reason why it's hard to embrace this value of ordinary acts of kindness. Because in our dog-eat-dog -dog age of division and rage, it's so easy, isn't it, to be seduced into thinking that what's really needed to make a difference in the world or in God's kingdom is not ordinary acts of kindness, but acts of impressiveness or even ruthlessness. you got to fight your way into being heard or into making a difference. I feel this temptation myself as a person, as a pastor. But don't you know, friends, will you believe it again today, that the kingdom of God, the very life-changing, world-changing power of God in this broken world shows up when we listen patiently as a child stutters to finish her sentence. God accomplishes his glorious purposes when we sacrifice our time to listen to a roommate who just lost their job. 
God's power breaks into this world when we quietly persevere in a challenging friendship with a neighbor who has little to give you in return, except, of course, the very thing you probably need most, which is friendship. Friends, God does work in and through you most. God does his work in and through you most, not when you feel most awesome, but typically when you feel most spent. When you feel most out of control. When you feel like you've come to the end of your human abilities to love and to hang in there. God, right then and there, is most at work. Because it really tests us, doesn't it? Do you believe in the cross? What the apostles called the, the foolishness of the cross, which on the surface seems like an idiotic, ineffective way of effecting redemption for the world. And yet for those with eyes and faith to see the power of the love of Christ, the cross is the power of God, and the cross is the pattern of God's way of working in the world, in your lives, in the church, through ordinary stuff, ordinary acts of love. Thirdly and lastly, God uses not only unlikely people and not only ordinary acts of love and sacrifice and kindness to accomplish his glorious purposes, God also finally uses our pain and our loss to accomplish his glorious purposes. Because don't forget, none of this happens in the life of Ruth if her husband doesn't die, if Naomi's husband doesn't die and her two sons along with him, unless they go through this season of intense suffering that causes them to relocate from one part of the region to another, to find themselves in a desperate situation looking for help, to find a new place of security and provision by the hand of God, but through human agents, even Boaz, to find this in this special marital arrangement. Boaz, as their guardian redeemer, bringing them into a, a, a new relationship that makes Ruth eventually the great-grandmother of the great King David, who is the greatest human picture and preview of the person of Jesus that we have in all of the Bible. None of that happens except for their broken hearts, except for death, except for tragedy, except for the very things that we're most resisting and running away from. I mean, don't get me wrong, God is deeply compassionate in our seasons of loss. He, he, he wishes no wanton pain for no purpose in our lives ever. As the psalmist even says, God stores our tears up in his bottle. Not one of them are lost. But the Bible also does tell us that though he's sympathetic as a father to our pain, he uses our pain. He uses our losses, our disappointments, our sufferings to accomplish his glorious purposes as he did in the life of Ruth and Naomi and even through them through the history of redemption 
of this world. God uses that pain. He does that in our own lives personally to help us to grow. We have the testimony of places like Romans 5 that says we glory, we rejoice, strange language, we even rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because for those who are in Christ, suffering produces perseverance. It makes you stronger in your faith. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. We grow because of our pain. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12 says a similar thing, but with a different kind of picture. We're told that God is parenting us through our suffering, uh, helping us to mature and grow. There it says, endure hardship as discipline, parental care. God is treating you as his children so that as we grow, we might share in his holiness and produce a harvest of righteousness and peace, says Hebrews 12. We grow. God's glorious purposes of making us more like Jesus in our love and in our character, in our faith and in our deeds, that happens through our pain. He does that in our own lives, but he also does that through us in other people's lives. Yes, because of our disappointments and loss and pain, is there something in your life right now that you're running from because it hurts? And dear friends, I know it hurts. God knows that it hurts. But can you imagine that that might be exactly the instrument of love, the locus of redemption that God might ask you to bring into the life of another suffering person one day, maybe even very soon. I've seen couples who have suffered through the nightmare of miscarriage, who would never want to go back there again and never wish it upon another person, and yet to be able to weep with unusual sympathy with another couple going through the same kind of pain because they too have suffered just the same. I've seen a, a minister just explode with fruitfulness in a way that has people thinking that that's always what his track record of ministry was like, not knowing that the first decade of ministry was actually marked by what the world might count as failure. But it was actually in that cauldron of frustration that God made him into a man deeper in character, deeper in faith, deeper in humility. And I promise you that is exactly why his ministry continues to flourish with fruitfulness today. Not despite, but because of that season of pain and disappointment. And this is in accordance with the promise of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1-3 says this, the Apostle Paul reflecting upon his own sufferings, even being brought to the brink of death, suffering in body, soul, mind, in every imaginable way for the cause of Christ. He writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So what's that pain in your life right now that God is going to use? First and foremost, to change you, to make you glorious, to make you more like Jesus. 
But secondly, also, to make you a vessel of love and comfort and care to a neighbor, a friend, a family member, even an enemy, an agent of redeeming grace in the life of another person. Just like Ruth's own pain and suffering and loss made her an agent of grace, indeed a great, 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 great grandmother of the Savior himself, Jesus, whose pain and suffering and loss on the cross was not just for the sympathetic care and comfort of those who are suffering, but actually for the redemption of those who are suffering, most of all from our own sin. This is Jesus' story most of all, isn't it? The one who suffered not aimlessly, but purposefully to rescue us, to save us, to love us. David Atkinson, a commentator and author, pastor, he writes with such insight about this point. He says one thing that the story of Ruth teaches us is that there's always a second story being written by and through the events of human choices and human circumstances. You see, we usually only can see the story that's being written as far as human eyes can see. The pain, the loss, the suffering, and the successes too. But through it all, mysteriously, eternally, spiritually, invisibly, God is writing a different story. A second story. A more lasting story. One that always arrives in glory. One where the visible story that you can feel with your senses, it might feel like it's actually heading in a downward spiral, actually in the second story by the mystery of God might be taking you to greater heights of glory. Who would have ever known if you were in Ruth's shoes that at the moment when her husband dies, that she was being brought closer to the perfect purposes that God had in store for her to be the great-grand-grand-great-great-grandmother of the gospel itself. And who and what mind can conceive and what heart, what wounded heart can comprehend that perhaps that's exactly the second story and trajectory that God has you on even now. As the Apostle again says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for our light and momentary troubles, they're intense and painful, but in light of the viewer, broader picture of things, he calls them light and momentary troubles, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That glory is coming. The new heavens and the new earth. The day when there will be no more pain and suffering and no more sin. When we'll be face to face with Jesus. When we'll walk with him by sight and not simply by faith. In the meanwhile, we struggle to walk and persevere. In a world of brokenness and suffering. In a world of Ruth, in fact. Of disappointment and pain. But can we believe, based on the testimony of our sister Ruth, that God uses it all? He uses unlikely people like you and me 
He uses our ordinary, even forgettable, it would seem, acts of love and kindness and sacrifice, and he uses even our pain and our loss to accomplish his glorious purposes. Take heart, dear friends. God is at work in you. God is at work through you. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would do that. Help us to believe and to see all that you're doing in our midst. Pray that you would give us faith and encouragement to see the unexpected, unlikely, surprising ways that you work. Help us to believe and renew our hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.